We're starting a new sermon series today. We're going to be in it for like five weeks. Then after that, we're going to do a three-week sermon series on sex. Yes, we are. And we're going to bring in all of our middle schoolers to come in and be with us for that for those three talks. Parents, I want to let you know that's going to be super appropriate for middle schoolers. But remember this. Remember, our kids are learning about sex at a much earlier age nowadays than they ever did before, and they're learning it wrong. They're learning it wrong from all the different places that they're hearing about it. And so we want to take three weeks, and we're just in a faithful, biblical, um, I hope to, to, you know, I hope to, like, bring everybody's defenses down, and I hope to be funny, all right? I'm going to give it a, give it a go. Um, we're going to do three weeks on that. And then, guys, then we're into Advent and Christmas. Can you believe it? So we're, this is kind of like, this is kind of like our flow for the fall. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to doing that with you together as a family. <sighs> awesome. Uh, Mackenzie, would you come up, please? And Mackenzie's going to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. Um, And like I said, we're heading into a new sermon series that I'm really, really excited about. Mackenzie, take it away. Today's Scripture comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His, ones, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be no, made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are, for your, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Mackenzie. Um, I love being a pastor. Um, I'm not going to do anything else um, with my life. I love being a pastor. And one of my favorite things about being a pastor is the, how it makes people feel awkward when you tell them that you're a pastor. It's one of my favorite things. Um, because usually I'm around people and, you know, like they're like swearing, you know, and like there's, you know, and they're like using language or maybe they're smoking or doing it like any, really any sort of undesirable behavior. And then they're like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, what's your name? I'm Brooks. What do you do? Uh, I pastor a church. And then just the hilarity ensues after that, because it's always like, oh, uh, pardon my French, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, blessings to you, you know, and like. People aren't really sure what to do, you know, and like, oh, what did I say? And people are going back in their brains, like what they said 10 minutes ago, like, oh, no, am I going to offend him? And none of, you know, like, none of that bothers me. It's just funny to me, you know. Um, the, the, funny, the funnest thing about being a pastor is when, I'm, is when, I'm, uh, when people are trying to sell you stuff. 
It's hilarious, uh, especially because, especially uh, Chrissy and I are, uh, we've gone on some vacations to, uh, to Mexico before, and one of the things that we do when we're on one of those, like, those all-inclusive resort things is the timeshare presentations. Has anybody ever done a timeshare presentation? So the basic thing is they're trying to sell you this thing, but they, they give you incentives to come and sit through the spiel. And so, you know, we got like a, you can get like a free zip line tour, like a free like little cruise around the bay. And so because Chrissy and I are super cheap, we're like, we'll sit through three-hour time timeshare presentation and get the free stuff. And so we sit in the timeshare thing, and, you know, they're like throwing all the different tools, you know, to try to sell us stuff. And we never kind of bite at it. But then usually there's this one part where they're like, hey, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And then they're like, oh, brother, blessings upon you. I used to be a pastor too. Whoa, look at the connection we have. And then like, you know, and it's like, it's suddenly everybody there at the office is a Christian and like they're using all the Christian language and it's just so, so funny. Um, here's my experience as being a, uh, being a pastor, which I'm so grateful I get to be a pastor, is I've discovered that usually when I tell people uh, that I'm a pastor, they're, like I said, they kind of get a little nervous, but nobody's like, nobody's angry at me, nobody uh, um, has like mean things to say to me because here's what I've discovered and here's what you know too is most people have, have not, don't, most people in our culture in our day and age don't really have a problem with Jesus. People, most people really love Jesus and appreciate Jesus. Like, oh man, Jesus, he was a great guy, said some good things. What people have an issue with mostly is with, with church, with what they would say organized religion. They would say, I'm fine with Jesus, but organized religion, church, I just, I just can't get on board with that. I have some quotes from some theologians um, the first one is from Elton John. He says, he says, from my point of view, I would ban religion completely, even though they were, uh, there are some wonderful things about it. I love the idea of the teachings of Jesus Christ and the beautiful stories about it, which I loved in Sunday school, and I collected all the little stickers and put them in my book. But the reality is that organized religion doesn't seem to work. It turns people into hateful lemmings, and it's not really compassionate. Uh, another one, another famous one that you probably heard before is from Gandhi. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And then another one from another great theologian. He says, hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. <laughs> that was from Han Solo. Um, I, I just find that... that um, there's just a lot of people who are really skeptical, really skeptical about the church, about organized religion, about what we're about, what it's all about. Um, and when you look at our cultural landscape, uh, there's uh, the growing number of people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. Um, I'm spiritual but not religious, what a lot of people would say, which is really interesting that we're in this, we find ourselves in this season of time when people are realizing that science can't explain everything and that there's this like something underneath at all, but we're not really quite sure what it, is, what it is, and it's like awakening people's spiritual life, but they've, whether it was their experience or whether their perception, they say, listen, I'm, I'm deeply spiritual, but, but I just, but I'm just not, I just don't consider myself religious. The people don't necessarily have a problem with like the lowercase c church, like the church down, like the local church down the street. Mostly, I think people just think that the local church down the street is just kind of irrelevant. But it's the big C church, the capital C church, the, the church just that spans generations and spans uh, geography all across the world. People would say, that church? I just, I don't trust that church. I don't trust it. Um, on one hand, I don't, I don't blame people. On one hand, I don't blame people. Um, 
there's so many things that I see in church world and just, it, it, and when we look at the news, it just breaks our, it breaks my heart, it breaks my heart. I feel like we could probably make a big list, but I kind of boiled it down to five things that I think a lot of people are disillusioned with when it comes to the church. Um, people are just disillusioned by a lot of things. And I, here's five things that I see that uh, people are, are really frustrated about and disillusioned about when it comes to the church. First would be this, is first that they see the hypocrisy and the moral compromise in the church. It's hypocrisy and moral compromise in the church. Uh, for uh, When I first moved here with our family, uh, I was working here at the church, but I also, because I needed a little extra money, but also because I wanted to kind of, I wanted to kind of to meet people in town that weren't church people, um, I got a job at Starbucks on West 11th. So I was, worked at Starbucks for a while at West 11th. And um, had a great experience there. And I always remember I was, uh, and it was like a few weeks in where people started to be like, so what, you have another job? And I told people I was a pastor. And they're like, then they're kind of, you know, oh, no, what's this, is this guy judging us right now, you know? And, uh, but, but, I want, but I want him over because I was just consistent. And, you know, we just had just built friendships. And I remember one of the guys, he, he found out I was a pastor. And he was like, he was like oh, yeah, we, we used to go to church growing up. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, was that a good experience? And he was like, well, I mean, um, we ended up leaving because the pastor cheated with my mom. And so that just kind of ruined it for me. Listen, I get it. I get the, the skepticism and the frustration that people have when they have an experience with church where they see hypocrisy, they see compromise, and they say, if that's what it's about, then I don't want to have any part of that. We look and we see, you know, what the, the, the sexual abuses in the Catholic Church, we all sort of watch that and we're like, oh my gosh, I mean, it just breaks our hearts. Just recently, I mean, there was a, there, Bill Hybels, a pastor in, uh, at Willow Creek, a pastor that I grew up just respecting. So many of us young pastors grew up just respecting, just stuff came out about him and some things, decisions that he's been making. Oh, and it's just, it just, it just tears, tear, it just, just tears my heart out. Tears, and so I, no wonder, no wonder people feel like, I can't trust the church. There's another one is, number two is it just looks too different. It just looks too different. It's like, um, I don't understand how the church connects to my life because you show up and it's just, it seems like they live in a completely different world. And so like, and they're expecting people to come to them and they're not coming to, you know, they're kind of not coming my way and they're expecting me to come their way. So it just looks too different. And then some people would say, man, it doesn't look different enough. It just doesn't look different enough. I mean, instead of forming disciples of Jesus, it's like, it's like the church often shapes disciples out of the same spirit of the world, which is radical individualism. And instead of proclaiming King Jesus, we're just sort of proclaiming King self, King comfort, King me, but we're sprinkling Christian language over the top, and we're just pasting some Christian veneer over the top, and people look at that and say, man, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's true, if it's real, then it should look different, but it doesn't look different enough. Everybody just kind of looks the same uh, than everybody else. If it's supposed to create a radically different kind of people, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. And I think actually people are longing, longing to see and meet people who are following Jesus, like sincerely following Jesus. I think people are longing just to see a different life that, it, that the gospel should create. But a lot of people don't get to have that experience. Number four is uh, just a lack of compassion and care. A lack of compassion and care. Um, we see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and and then we look at our world and it just, it just feels like the church isn't operating with that same level of compassion and care. And then number five is, is just that it divides instead of unites. A lot of people just feel like, man, it just, it just divides instead of 
instead of unites. Is it, isn't it supposed to unite people? Man, we feel like it's supposed to dividing. We feel like it just divides. I feel like that's where a lot of people land, and we could, the list could probably go on, but those are five, five big things um, that I see. And as a pastor, it breaks my heart. But here's the good news. You ready for some good news? The good news is this, is that in the heart of Christianity, within Christianity, it, Christianity itself holds the seeds, holds the ability to not only identify all those, all those negative, unhealthy things that the church can get itself into, and it has the power, within Christianity is the ability to not only identify it, but to, but to rectify it, to, to renovate it, to change it, and to turn it, the church back, back to its original purpose and back to its original core heart. That Christianity has that within it. That's the good news. That's the good news for us. Um, and if you want to talk about uh, anybody who critiqued empty religion, it was Jesus. If there's anybody out there that knows how to critique empty religion, it's Jesus. Because Jesus has some zingers. Jesus, throughout the New Testament, he, ha- he says some things where you just want to go, oh, dang. You know, like, oh, man, I can't believe he just said that. Matthew 23, here's one thing that he says. He's with a group of religious leaders. And here's what he says. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single comfort. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Oh, dang, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, he's, if there's anybody that knows how to critique empty religion, this is what he's doing. And there's another point in the Sermon on the Mount. It's from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about what happens when the church fails to be what it's supposed to be. He says this. He says, you, he's talking about the church, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus says, when the church loses its saltiness, what, you know, what, what good is it? And it just seems it's like, man, what's the point? Why do we even need it? And that's what a lot of people are asking in our culture today. What's the point of church? What's the point? Do, does the world even need it? Or should we just sort of get rid of it? That's what happens. And so it's strange that Mackenzie, she read this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. And so how in the world can Paul, how in the world can Paul say what he, what he just said in that passage? Which we're not going to unpack that whole passage. We've got, we got some weeks to unpack a few things. But Paul says this incredible thing in, in, in the passage that she read. He, he, says, uh, he says this. He says that God is going to, this is verse 9 through 11, that he's going to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, that God's going to un- unveil this mystery. And here it is, that his intent was that now through the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says there's this great mystery that God's going to reveal to the world, and he's going to show God's wisdom through the church. Man, that's incredible. And I think a lot of people are just asking, man, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see the wisdom. So here's what I want you to know. This whole sermon series that we're going to start, here's what you got to know is I'm not giving up on church, on the capital C church. I'm not giving up on church, and neither should you. I'm not giving up on it, and neither, neither should you. Because we have an incredible opportunity in our time, in our day and age, when people are wondering, what's the point of church? For us to 
for us to remember and return back to the, the point of church, the foundation of church in the, first place, in the first place. And when the early church, when the early church just started, it was, what happened in world history was unprecedented. It was crazy. Christianity went from, went from just a few followers in just a few hundred years, it toppled over the Roman Empire. And they didn't have guns, they didn't have swords, they didn't have an army, but it transformed everything. And it was because that they were, they were the church. And we have an opportunity to do that, to do that too. Um, I know that the church can get into a, you know, we're so frustrated with a lot of things, but listen, if you're taking notes, you can say this, is, or you can write this down. The answer, the answer isn't to reject, reinvent, or refurbish, or even refurbish the church. That's not the answer. The answer isn't to reject it, which this is what a lot of people do now with the church, is number one, and we'll just, man, we'll just reject it. It's just lame. It's just done. Or we'll just reinvent it. Like, I know what I'll do. I'm unhappy with, with like, with church, so I'm going to create my own church, and we're just going to listen to some Beatles music and eat stir fry, and we'll call that church. And so we just reinvent it. People are just reinventing all the time. Or it's like, oh, we'll just refurbish it. We'll just have like the pastor wear tighter jeans and we'll just, and we'll get some cooler this and we'll just spice up this. And if we just do those things, then, oh, the church is going to be the church again. And I just want to submit to you that none of those things are the answer. None of those things are the answer. The answer is this, is that the answer is to rediscover and take seriously the foundation that's been there all along. Just to rediscover it. And then to take it seriously, to return to it, okay? Have you ever been lost? Have you ever been lost somewhere and you just can't find your way? We've all had that experience. You've been driving somewhere and you, you don't know where, you, you're kind of lost, you're not sure where you're going. Listen, the answer isn't then to tear up your map or the answer isn't to just or slash your tires. The answer isn't to blame everybody in the back seat. The answer, if you're lost, is to remember where you were going in the first place and maybe ask for directions and go and head there. That's the answer. Okay? It makes me think of Brussels sprouts. Can I preach about Brussels sprouts here for a second? I'm about to get serious in my sermon this morning. Stop that. Don't do that with my Brussels sprouts. Because, listen, listen, I feel like you might be reacting that way with Brussels sprouts. Because when I grew up, when I grew up, uh, my grandma, every Thanksgiving, would make the Brussels sprouts. And here's how she would prepare the Brussels sprouts. Is she would first boil them for like five hours. She just boil them. And so you pull, you pull them out, and they're just like this soggy, waterlogged, disgusting thing, right? And then, and then she wouldn't even stop there. Then when she would take this cheese sauce, it would be this like cheesy sauce, and it would be like watered down, she, like Velveeta, add a bunch of water, like one part Velveeta, one part water, and just like, and then just pour it over. And then you take a bite and it would be like a sponge and it squishes out all the water that it had soaked up. And I grew up hating Brussels sprouts. Did anybody else have Brussels sprouts like that or maybe something formed like it? And it's like, oh my gosh. And it's just so unbiblical to eat Brussels sprouts like that. Because here's what you do with Brussels sprouts. You get them and you bring them home and you wash them and you like either whole or you, or you cut them in half and then you, all you got, you just sprinkle some olive oil on it, salt, pepper, maybe, maybe just add a little, maybe your own like special spice onto it, I don't know. And then you just roast it in the oven, just roast them up, just put them in there, let them get, get some color on them, like the edges start to curl up a little bit and you pull them out and they're slightly crunchy but still chewy and guys, that's the way that God designed Brussels sprouts to be eaten, okay? I don't have time to show you the verse, but it's in there. And 
too, it's just sad because so many people have just pushed off Brussels sprouts because they just haven't been eating it the right way. Do you see where I'm headed with this illustration? Unfortunately, so we just live in a world where so many people are like, oh my gosh, the church is so irrelevant. When maybe they've just, they, they haven't gotten a chance to really experience it. And what, a, what an incredible opportunity we have. Just this little church in West Eugene, West Side, that we get to, we get to embody the gospel in a way that we, we make it real. I want to talk to my audience to, for today and really for the, for the rest of the, the sermon series. Listen, you might be here and you, you know, might be new to church and so you're, you're skeptical. Listen, you are in the right place. This is the perfect sermon series for you to be in. We're going to unpack some things. I hope that I can help you see some things you've never seen before. Uh, I'm convinced that many don't see the point of church. Why? Because they don't see where the church points. They just haven't seen where the church points. Maybe you're here and you've been a, you, you grew up in church. You've been in church so much, and maybe you're in a spot where you're going through the motions. You come because it's 10 o'clock on Sunday, and that's what we're supposed to do apparently as Christians. But what I want to help you see in this sermon series is I want to reignite the passion and the fire for what the point of church is. Because the point of church is not just to create a church service on Sunday morning for nice church people. The mission of the church is way. It's way better. It's incredible. And if we do it right, it has the potential to be compelling, beyond compelling. And it has the truly the, the, the potential to transform the world. Here's what I want to do. is uh, The Bible says a lot of things about church, but the Bible uses several different, several different metaphors for what the church is. And I just kind of want to like tick through them, okay? Just four different, there's a lot of metaphors, but I just want to tick through four metaphors for the church that the Bible has just to help us understand a few things about the church. First is bride. Bride. The one of the ways when, when the Bible talks about what the church is supposed to be about to God, God says, listen, it's my bride. And this has to do with God's passion. His passion. I get to do a lot of weddings. One of my favorite parts about my job, way better than funerals. And when I do, when I do weddings, my favorite moment is I'm up there usually with the, with the groom, and then, you know, the, the, everyone stands, and then the bride comes down. And what I love about this is, see, uh, I have this special thing that nobody else, everybody misses, because usually everybody's looking at the bride, right? Which is good, right? You should stand up, look at the bride. But when everybody else is looking at the bride, I like to look at, I like to look at the, the groom. That's my, because I'm right there, and I just like look, and he's, I like looking at him looking at the bride. Because he's just, it's that face, you know? It's just like, oh, it's just coming down. It's just like, it's one of the best moments of a wedding, right? Um, when God describes how he feels about the church, he talks about the church as his bride. This is staggering. Because here's this guy looking at his bride, and what's going on? I mean, there is, there's love. There's, oh my gosh, how beautiful. I've never seen you so beautiful. There's this, there's this like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I get to, be, get to be married to you. And then you know what else there is? And I hate to bring it up in church. We're actually going to do a whole sermon series on it. But there's like actual, like a, some, some sexual tension. <laughs> there's like this, there's like this, oh, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's electric. Now, if that kind of language makes you feel uncomfortable, that God feels that same way about you and about his church, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, get over it. Because it's all throughout the Bible, 
All right. In fact, there's this a whole book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. And yes, it's about the husband, you know, loving the wife and the wife loving the husband. It's a very romantic book. But all theologians say also, every commentator says, yes, it's about, you know, human love and how we love each other. But do you know what this book is really about? It's really about how God sees his bride, the church. He's passionate about his bride. It's crazy. You know why it's crazy? It's because he knows us. And he knows how we do not deserve to be dressed in white. He knows everything about us. He sees everything and he knows all of the icky parts. He knows all the parts that we're ashamed about, but yet he still says, no, you're my bride. I love you. The Bible talks about sin often as marital unfaithfulness. When the Bible talks about sin, often it says that it's like he's our, our, our spouse, but we're the spouse that's just always being unfaithful. And yet our God looks at us continually and says, listen, no, you are still my bride. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible, in the Old Testament about it, uh, sorry, about it. It's called the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, there's this guy named, named Hosea, and he is supposed to go and marry this woman who's a prostitute. She's very promiscuous. But the, the, in the book, it, it's, it's, he's supposed to go to her and he's supposed to bring her in and call her his own. And she doesn't feel like she deserves it. And, but he says, no, 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 I'm going to dress you in white and call you my bride because I love you. And that's exactly how God feels about us. Here's a quote from a guy named Brandon D. Smith. He says this, we are Gomer. Gomer, by the way, is the name of the bride that he pulled back. Gomer. It's, it's a rough word. It's a rough name. I don't meet a lot of people named Gomer. He says, we, we are Gomer. We are spiritual adulterers. We want to have it our way, and we are willing to reject God's covenantal faithfulness for fleeting one-night stands with idols. While it's hard to admit that we're no different than Gomer, it's a truth that we can embrace with humility and comfort. The story of Hosea and Gomer reminds us that God loves us not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. Christ saves and continues to intercede for the bride who covets other men. Until we see God face to face, we will continue to be drawn to other things. But for now, our husband stands and fights. Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming uh, and second coming show that God wasn't telling Hosea to do something he wasn't willing to do on a much grander scale. He did not forsake his people despite their long history of disobedience and indifference. The Father's sending of the Son is the definition of grace, unmerited, undeserved, logic-shattering favor. The bride, and it has to do with his passion. The next one is temple temple. Another way the Bible describes the church is temple. And this has to do with God's presence. The first one has to do with his passion for the church. This next one has to do with God's presence in the church. In the Old Testament, temples were places where you would go to encounter God. In the Old Testament, we see that they had to build a temple, and then there was this holy of holies place, and that's sort of in a, in a, in a strange way, it, that was where God, God's presence was. But only a few people could go in and experience it, just the high priest could go in, and it was kind of separated, but it was God's way of sort of like shielding his glory and, and holiness from everything else so that we could have a way, 
where you find a way to serve him and, and love him. And then Jesus shows onto the scene and everything changes. Because in John chapter 1, John says it this way. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it says, and, and this God t- came and dwelled with human- humanity. And that word dwelled is the word tabernacled. That it says that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. It's this incredible statement that's telling us that now in Jesus, G- now God's presence is here with us in Jesus. No longer do we need a temple because now we've got a person. But then it gets even better than that. Because in Acts chapter 2, the church is gathered and Jesus is gone already. The temple, the curtain has been torn in two. So now it's not just the priests that get to go in, but it's available to all. And the church is gathered and the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And now every Christ follower is a walking, talking, breathing, moving temple. That God's presence is with us. This is incredible. It's incredible that his presence is with us. That God's presence is with the church. That means, the the implications are staggering, but that means that one of the best ways for you to experience God is through the person sitting next to you. That God's presence is here with us when we gather. And even when we're not gathered, when we're just following him everywhere, his presence is with us. That's incredible. The next one is family. Family. This has to do with God wanting a radically different kind of people. First one's about passion. The next one's about his presence. And this one's about people, different kind of people, family. That God is creating a new kind of family that's with King Jesus at the center, not King self, not King comfort, not King self-actualization with just some Christian lingo pasted over the top, but no, King Jesus at the center. And when King Jesus is at the center, it creates a radically different kind of people. It just does. Because Christ is at the center. Because his grace is at the center. See, if you get people together who have common interests, that'll bring some people together, right? Like, what if we were all uh, um, at Comic-Con right now, you know? And we would all, did, you guys, okay, did I get super nerdy on you? You guys know what Comic-Con is, right? It's like, yeah, okay, like, you know, Marvel movies and comic books and people get together. They have these conventions all over. And what, what brings people together at Comic-Con, or let's, let's use a little bit, little bit more familiar example. Let's talk about Autzen Stadium on a Saturday, all right? That brings people together. And what brings people together is because, oh, we're cheering for our ducks. And so there's this, like, there's this family that gets connected, but it's, like a, but it's a superficial family. It's a, it doesn't go very deep. Because it's based on common interests. But here comes the church. And do you guys know the church is not built on common interests? It's not built on common interests. It has to go way deeper than that. Church, the church of Jesus is built on this idea that we're all sinners and that we're all saved by grace. And when that's the commonality, when that's the thing that holds us together, here's what you will find. You will find communities of Jesus that are very diverse. All sorts of different kinds of people. You should expect, if you're in a healthy church, to come into a place where you see old, young, you know, tatted up, not tatted up. I mean, you know, just, just diversity, just, you know, racial diversity, diversity and cultural diversity. Because what's holding us together isn't just that we're all the same and that we all like the same things. That's kind of like community 1.0. Community, two, community 2.0 is when Christ is at the center, it creates truly brothers and sisters. Expect to go to a church where you're going to see people in different levels of development, different levels of discipleship. That's a good thing. That's the problem when people say, I don't like church, so I'm going to start my own church, but I'm just going to invite all my friends to my church. And so then you have just all your friends, but you're all the same. 
And what you don't have is this diversity that's supposed to mark the church. Here's a fact of history is that the early Christians created the most diverse group of people that the world had ever seen. In in the first century in the Middle East, the rich weren't hanging out with the poor. The the Gentiles weren't hanging hanging out with the Jews. I mean, none of that happened. It was all just divided. You think our world is divided? Their world was divided too. But Christianity came and brought in everyone and created the most diverse group of people that the world had ever seen. Family, family has to do with what kind of people he wants to create. Um, Lastly, body, body. Body is probably one of the main metaphors that the Bible uses for what the church is supposed to be about. And this has to do with God's purpose for his people. Remember, it's about his passion. It's about his presence. It's about his people he's creating. And then this has to do with purpose, that God has this crazy idea. It's this crazy idea that he wants to build his kingdom on earth. But he's not going to do it just by coming down in a big fireball, making it happen. He could. He could just like, you know, snap his fingers with the infinity stones and just like make it right. He could just make, just make everything good. But that's not what he decided to do. That's not what he decided to do. It's crazy what he decided to do. He says, I'm going to build my kingdom, but, uh, but I'm going to do it by leaving my body on earth, but it's gonna be a body built by all sorts of different, just ragged, rugged people who have me at the center of their life and they're growing and they're being transformed. But I'm gonna bring about my kingdom with, with this group of people right here. And so the Bible describes the church as his body, his, his body on earth, that we have this job to do. And every time we leave church on a Sunday morning, what do I say? What's my benediction? Is let's go and what? Be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Because guess what? We're his body. That's incredible. We've got a job to do. We get to be Jesus on planet earth in the, way that we, in the ways that we love, in the ways that we serve, in the ways that we care. This is incredible. You know what the implications are of this? It's staggering. It means that everybody's needed. Everybody's needed. All right? Because the body only functions when everything's, everything's working together. Unless you're a, like a, unless you're a tonsil or a, uh, an appendix, right? Um, there's no appendixes or tonsils in the kingdom of God because, listen, we're, we're all needed. We're all needed. And what's fascinating about this is in China, in the early part of this century, the Chinese Christians were pushed out of the country. They said, you're not allowed to meet. And so they were pushed out. If you were a pastor of any sort of kind, you were thrown in prison, you were thrown in jail. So they were leaderless. Christians in China, they were leaderless. They didn't have Bibles for for most of them. And do you know what's happened to Christianity in China in this last century? There are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. Multiply that by like, I don't know how many. The, the Christianity in China is, is booming. Not because they have even like big buildings or big budgets or they just, they're just so, they've, they've gotten to the heart of what Christianity means and it's grown and they've recognized that they don't, they don't, they, they're all the body and they all get to work together. Meanwhile, in Europe, in, meanwhile in Europe, Christianity has slowly declined. Why? It's because everybody sat back and waited for the, waited for the professionals to do all the ministry. And so in the kingdom of God, I don't have the most important job. Did you guys know that? Did you guys know that? I don't have the most important job. I know I've got the microphone. I know I get to preach on Sundays. But I'm just one little piece 
And if we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, then that means that we need so much more than just, that means it's more than just Sundays listening to a sermon. It's we get to go and be his hands and feet everywhere we go. You've got something to contribute. You have something that matters to the kingdom. That's the good news. Church, listen, when I look at Westside, you know, when God looks at Westside, you know what he sees? He sees bride. He sees bride. What else does he see? He sees temple. His presence is with us. You know what else? He sees family, brothers and sisters. You know what else he sees? He sees a body, people being his his hands and feet. In this sermon series, we're calling it Church 101. We're going to kind of rediscover what the essence and the core of what the church is supposed to be. And I just hope it just ignites. It just ignites. It just makes us so excited and passionate about what we get to be as the church of Jesus Christ. Here's how we'll end today. Uh, Did you know that there are lots of different ways for you to be the body here uh, on, on Sunday mornings? Listen, if you're not on a team right now, if you're not serving on a team, then guess what? You are, two things are going to happen if you join a team at Westside. Two things are going to happen. One of them is this, is you're going to be known. Have you ever wondered maybe why it's hard to make friends sometimes at a church? Part of it is because you just haven't stepped over that line and said, I want to help and serve. Don't wait for you to get all the friendships to serve. Sometimes it's the serving sort of I want to be on a team that helps you get all those, all those friendships that you're hoping for. So you gotta, you got to serve. You gotta, you're going to be known if you jump on a team. That's one of the best ways to make friends. The other thing is, do you know that you're needed? You're needed. You know how many kids we have next door? It's incredible. It'll blow your mind. It'll scare you actually a little bit if you go over there. There's so many people serving next door. I mean, what, what, if, what if you said, hey, once a month, I'm going to go help with some babies. Once a month, I'm going to go, you know, maybe, or maybe you think, you know what, middle schoolers. Hey, do we love middle schoolers here at Westside? Oh, my gosh. I, guys, I lo- I'm so proud of our team serving middle schoolers. That, what, a, what a fragile time in life, isn't it? You're just trying to get out with a sense of dignity, you know what I mean? You're just like, you're just trying to make it through. You got all the, your identity is just getting pushed on all sorts of different ways. I mean, what if, and right now we've got groups of middle schoolers down the hall at breakfast club. We serve them breakfast and we just get them around tables and we just want them to know how good God is and how much God loves them. And what if you said, gosh, I want to be a part of that. I want to be around one of those tables. I want a middle schooler to know how loved they are and how much we care about them. I don't know, but I just know you've got something to contribute. If you're not on a team, then please get on a team. And over there in where the food is, there'll be some people in Westside Church. Just talk to them. Say, hey, I don't, I'm thinking about this. Or is there, where is there an opening? We'll help you. We'll help you find a good spot. Um, that's one thing I want you to know. The other thing I want you to know is this, is parenting is really hard, isn't it? We talked about that already. And I think a lot of parents are, feel really clueless about what to do as parents. And uh, so here's what our church has decided to do is uh, several months ago, I took this great parenting class by um, a guy named Corey Jackson. He, he's, a, he's a counselor at CAFA. He did a re- this parenting class is one of the best parenting classes that I got to be a, a part of. It was a six-week class, and I was so helpful. I mean, it was so helpful for us, for Christy and I. And I just said, you know what? I want to I offer that to everybody here at Prairie Mountain, like as many people as we can in this neighborhood. I want them to be able to, to, to learn how to be better parents. 
And so we said, so I don't know, some of you nearby, we sent out flyers. Like we sent out 2,000 flyers. We're just inviting the whole neighborhood. Hey, listen, Westside wants to serve you. We want to care for you. We want to help you be the, as best of parents as you can be. And that starts with you being a healthy person. So starting in October, we're going to do a six-week parenting class. And we're just inviting as many people as we can. Hey, if you, if you feel like you need that right now, you need that parenting class, do it. You sign up. But you know what we need a lot of is we need a lot of people to help us put that on. We're going to watch people's kids. We're going to serve them dinner all six weeks. It's going to be a big deal. Our church is investing some time and some money into this, but it's because we really feel like it's going to bear fruit. We really feel like it matters. We want our neighbors to know that God loves them and God sees them in all the things that they're up to. And we just want to serve. We want to be his hands and feet. If you want to be on board with that, listen, then, then respond. We want to help get you on board to help with that. Whatever, however that fits, whatever that looks like, jump on board. Be known because you are needed. You're needed.